Wake up, everyone. It's time for the Steve Noble Show, where biblical Christianity meets the everyday issues of life in your home, at work, and even in politics. Steve is an ordinary man who believes in an extraordinary God. And on his show, there's plenty of grace and lots of truth, but no sacred cows. Call Steve now at 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Or check him out online at thestevenobleshow.com. And now, here's your host, Steve Noble. I hope you had a really good weekend, the beautiful weather, just spectacular. I love this time of year. Thank you, Lord. Uh, For fall weather, Sunday, yesterday at our small group, which we hosted at our house from church, uh, we we, we were talking about our church finishing up uh, right near the end of the book of James, and so we were talking about uh, patience, long-suffering in the original language. And, uh, and then after we were done, I was talking to one couple, uh, and they were like, Hey, did you see that article in the New York times? And I'm like, no, questioning the scientific community, having to question origins, like origins of the universe. And I'm like in the New York times. Yep. So they pull it up on the phone. There it was. The story of our universe may be starting to unravel on September 2nd is when this was in the New York times. And I'm like, uh, Okay, I got to read that. And that's September 2nd. That's two weeks ago. And uh, I wonder why, why haven't I not heard? Why have I not heard anything about this? Well, when I get into this, you'll understand uh, why this is not showing up in the mainstream media. These are these are huge issues. It's just fascinating to watch this go on in our lifetime over over world history, the the back and forth between the uh, scientific community and the claims of scripture. And so that's fascinating. The story of our universe may be starting to unravel. I'm going to go through that. Uh, Donald Trump uh, just did. It's kind of odd uh, that he just did this. So he did a long interview on Meet the Press with Kristen Welker. And uh, they were talking about abortion. Most of you, including myself, are going to be disappointed by that. So I want to go through that. It's fascinating. He's uh, playing the general election game because the assumption is he's going to win the Republican primary. So we'll see. And then if you think things are tough for us here in America, there's this. Uh, this was in the New York Post just uh, two days ago. Taliban detains American and 17 others in Afghanistan. How about that? If the Taliban's detaining you in Afghanistan for propagating and promoting Christianity. So that's something we all need to pray about. I'll, I'll share a little bit about that article. It's a Swiss charity. It's been over there for like 60 years. Are we living... Um, The fall of Rome, which I'm actually teaching on this week in my world history class for Noble U. Last week, we did the first part of the Roman civilization, which I actually talked about on Thursday, if you missed that. Just an overview of how you get to the birth of Christ and Caesar Augustus and the census and what all was leading up to that and why God chose that place in that time. It's fascinating. And so this week, we're doing uh, kind of the the rise of Christianity, the spreading of Christianity in the Roman Empire, and then the the fall of the Roman Empire. So are we living the fall of Rome? A lot of parallels there, which we need to pay attention to if we have time. And then we'll get to David Fisher uh, in the last segment of the show. Saturday, I was uh, a very proud teacher on Saturday morning with our friends at Love Life, who've uh, just continued to grow across the country, have that prayerful presence out in front of Abortion clinics and now providing houses of refuge for uh, women that are finding themselves in unplanned pregnancies. Love Life, who we've talked to many times on the show. I, I did uh, partnered with them when they first came to Raleigh to try to get people out in churches, and it just continues to grow. 
by the the grace of God. But so I twice a year during the school year, once in the fall, once in the spring, I essentially bribe uh, students to go with me, give them a bunch of extra credit points to come out on a Saturday morning from nine to 11 a.m. to do something that the overwhelming majority of them have never done. Uh, Not just the fact that you're going to stand literally right across the street, like 25 feet away from the the entrance to the abortion clinic, the driveway. And it's literally right there. I mean, it's like you're standing in your neighborhood and and right across the street. And it's the abortion clinic. It's up close and personal to get them exposed to the spiritual darkness. I had 40 students come out on Saturday morning, which is awesome. A bunch of them came with family members and parents. So we made up about 80 percent of the group that was there on Saturday, which was wonderful. And uh, just to see, I, I want to get these young people out there, as many as of, of them as I can every year. That's why I throw a lot of points at them. So they're like, oh, man, that could really affect my grade. Right, you're right. I'm bribing you. I mean, I tell them that in class. I'm bribing you. I, I, your, your grade is secondary to me. Your spiritual development is primary. And I want you to come out here. I want you to get as close to the, this is as close to the spiritual darkness and the gates of hell as you're going to get in America when they're killing babies across the street. Literally, while you're there. You're you're at a funeral and God moves pretty regularly there and moms change their minds and dads and praise the Lord every time it happens. But they 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 need to be exposed to that. They need to come into the understanding that spiritual darkness is real. The war is real. There are people that really do hate you. And it's the upside down world in that place. It's Isaiah. Woe to those so-called good evil and evil good. We're on this side of the street. We think that's evil over there. They're on that side of the street. They think we're evil. And so it's just an amazing experience for these young people. Most of my students are 15, 16 years of age and having their eyes open. One of my students, very mature, after we were done and, and come come back to the original gathering place and, and wrap up some, some things that happened there at the end. And then we all take a picture together, which is awesome. I put all this stuff on Facebook so you can go look at it. It was up on Saturday. And then he came up to me and he goes, yeah, you know what? I, I, I think what just happened to me is I had my uh, the bubble of my spiritual innocence was just popped. Because you go from the theological and the theoretical to reality when you're across the street from an abortion clinic and we're praying and and I they asked me to share the gospel at the end with the people in our crowd which is probably most likely 100% born again and then the six or seven or eight volunteers across the street and uh, so I did that and that that's pretty uncomfortable when you're talking to the people across the street as well as your own people and sharing the gospel but uh, they, uh, these students need to see it. They were very grateful. I'm looking forward to this week talking to them in class. What'd you think? Uh, what did that do to you? What kind of impact did it have on you? And that's what we have to do. We have to drag our kids out of the church environment into the real world when appropriate and as appropriate, but sooner than later and expose them to the reality of that kind of darkness. You really are in a spiritual war. There really are people that hate you. And you're growing up in the homeschool community, Christian community. You're in a little bubble. Uh, but that's going to that's gonna end, and we're going to push you out in a couple of years, and you're going to go out into the quote-unquote real world. And uh, they need to have their minds and spirits open to that. They need to have their hearts softened to that. And no better issue, unfortunately, than dealing with abortion. So super proud of my students and the families that came. We'll do it again in the spring. When we come back, the story of our universe may be starting to unravel in the New York Times. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, the Steve Noble Show. It's not every day that in the New York Times you see a op-ed piece with a title like this one. The story of our universe may be starting to unravel. Well, it all depends on who wrote that, right? What do you do with that? So this is by uh, Adam Frank and Marcelo Gleiser. Dr. Frank is an astrophysicist at the University of Rochester. Dr. Gleiser is a theoretical physicist at Dartmouth College. So think Oppenheimer type people. Okay. Not long ago, uh, not long after the James Webb Space Telescope began beaming back from outer space its stunning images of planets and nebula last year, astronomers, though dazzled, had to admit that something was amiss. Eight months later, based in part on what the telescope has revealed, it's beginning to look as if we may need to rethink key features of the origin and development of the universe. It's in the New York Times. One of the web's first major findings was exciting in an uncomfortable sense. It discovered the existence of fully formed galaxies far earlier than should have been possible, according to the so-called standard model of cosmology. According to the standard model, which is the basis for essentially all research in the field, there is a fixed and precise sequence of events that followed the Big Bang. First, the force of gravity pulled together denser regions in the cooling cosmic gas, which grew to become stars and black holes. Then the force of gravity pulled together the stars into galaxies. Right? Makes perfect sense. The web data, though, revealed that some very large galaxies formed really fast in too short a time, at least according to the standard model. This was no minor discrepancy. The finding is akin, listen, the finding is akin to parents and their children appearing in a story when the grandparents are still children themselves. I know it sounds a little bit like a limerick. Let me say that again. The finding is akin to parents and their children appearing in a story when the grandparents are still children themselves, which should theoretically be impossible, right? It was not, unfortunately, an isolated incident. Did you hear that? Unfortunately. Uh, there have been other recent occasions in which the evidence behind science's basic understanding of the universe has been found to be alarmingly inconsistent. Take the matter of how fast the universe is expanding. This is a foundational fact in cosmological science, the so-called Hubble constant, yet scientists have not been able to settle on a number. Hmm. At first, scientists expected this discrepancy, there's like two different ways of doing it, to resolve as the data got better. But the problem has stubbornly persisted even as the data have gotten far more precise. And now, new data from the Webb web telescope have exacerbated the problem. This trend suggests a flaw in the model, not in the data. Physicists and astronomers are starting to get the sense that something may be really wrong. <laughs> It's not just that some of us believe we might have to rethink the standard model of cosmology. We might also have to change the way we think about some of the most basic features of our universe, a conceptual revolution that would have implications far beyond the world of science. They got that right. A potent mix of hard-won data and rarefied abstract mathematical physics, the standard model of cosmology is rightfully understood as a triumph of human ingenuity, of course. We love to pat ourselves on the back. It has its origins in Edwin Hubble's discovery in the 1920s that the universe was expanding, the first piece of evidence for the Big Bang. Then, in 1964, radio astronomers discovered the so-called cosmic microwave background, the quote-unquote fossil radiation, reaching us from shortly after the universe began expanding. 
you know, because it did have an origin. We all agree with that. That finding told us that the early universe was a hot, dense soup of subatomic particles, almost sounds like a dark firmament or something, that has been continually cooling and becoming less dense ever since. Over the past 60 years, cosmology has become even more precise in its ability to account for the best available data about the universe. But along the way, to gain such a high degree of precision, astrophysicists have had to postulate the existence of components of the universe for which we have no direct evidence. Hmm. There's nothing inherently fishy about these features of the standard model. Scientists often discover good indirect evidence for things that we cannot see, such as the hyperdense singularities inside a black hole. But in the wake of the web's confounding data about galaxy formation and the worsening problem with the Hubble constant, you can't be blamed for starting to wonder if the model is out of joint. A familiar narrative about how science works is often trotted out at this point to assuage anxieties. It goes like this. Researchers think they have a successful theory, but new data show it's flawed. Courageously rolling up their sleeves, the scientists go back to the blackboards and come up with new ideas that allow them to improve their theory by better matching the evidence. Boy, it would have been nice to practice that kind of science during COVID, right? That's actual science. Hashtag science. Pope Fauci. It's a story of both humility and triumph, and we scientists love to tell it. And it may be what happens in this case, too. We'll see. But... Uh, Perhaps the solution to the problem the web is forcing us to confront will require only that cosmologists come up with a new quote-unquote dark something or other (laughs) that will allow our picture of the universe to continue to match the best cosmological data. There is, however, another possibility. We may be at a point where we need a radical departure from the standard model, one that may even require us to change how we think of the elemental components of the universe, possibly even the nature of space and time. Cosmology is not like other sciences. It's not like studying mice in a maze or watching chemicals boil in a beaker lab, right? You can't put it in a box or on a table, right? It's, it's difficult. It is not obvious, to say the least, how such revolutionary reconsiderations of our science might help us better understand the cosmological data that is flummoxing us. I appreciate their honesty here. It would necessarily be a leap of faith to step back and rethink such fundamentals about our science. The philosopher Robert Kreese has written that philosophy is what's required when doing more science may not answer a scientific question. You think? Philosophy. Asking questions that are outside of the lab, outside of the formula. It's not clear yet if that's what's needed to overcome the crisis in cosmology. But if more tweaks and adjustments don't do the trick, we may need just a new story of the universe Not just a new story of the universe, but also a new way to tell stories about it. Uh, May I suggest something, doctors? (laughs) Interesting, huh? It's interesting. I I love this article because these two guys were honest enough. Because I I hadn't heard. Have you heard this anywhere? I haven't. I'm perusing stuff all the time. I, I haven't seen this. I haven't heard this. Thanks to... Jimmy and Norma for letting me know about this yesterday. But wow, I, I've often said both here and, and in classes that I think science is just the revelation of God's genius. That's all it is. Uh, math wouldn't exist unless there was a designer. Otherwise, everything would be chaotic. There would be no order. What they think is that there was absolutely nothing than violating pretty much all the known laws of thermodynamics and physics and so on and so forth. Uh, out of nothing came an explosion, which then created everything. And with the help of gravity and a few other things here and there, you form into the galaxies and eventually you get matter into planets and stars and, and the right kind of 
a relationship between a sun, a star, and its planets and creating orbits. And then eventually uh, you get a situation like, I don't know, here on Earth where you just have this absolutely perfect, finely tuned environment in order to support life. And these guys just can't handle the fact that the Bible might have been right the whole time from their perspective. Because the implications of the cosmological constant doesn't change your life. But if the Bible is true, it changes everything. And it is. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, The Steve Noble Show. Pretty interesting. I think Donald Trump's pretty much just running a general campaign now, assuming that he's got the uh, Republican nomination uh, locked up, which he very well might, but we'll see. We live in a crazy world, so anything's possible. President Donald Trump gave a wide-ranging interview to new Meet the Press host, Kristen Welker. The interview hit on several topics. Okay, so this is on abortion. So let me just walk you through this and... I have some thoughts, and I'm sure you will as well. Trump criticized Republicans for speaking very inarticulately about abortion. He also vowed to work with Democrats to make sure both sides will be happy. Abortion. Trump said pro-lifers, quote, have the right to negotiate for the first time because the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade in June of 2022. So he's Johnny on the spot to take credit for that, as he should. I mean, he's the one that appointed the three Supreme Court justices, so... I give him all the props for that. The former president said the Democrats are the radical people on the abortion issue. He said Democrats are in favor of abortion after five months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months. And even after birth, you're allowed to terminate the baby. Welker Welker questioned Trump's assertion, and he pointed to controversial comments about third semester abortions made in 2019 by then Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat. Trump stated that abortion is a 50-50 issue with Americans. So remember... When you're talking about abortion, when you're looking at an interview like this, whether Trump or anybody else, there's the political realities on the table. Okay, the political realities are uh, uh, close to 70 percent of Americans do not want abortion completely outlawed. Most Americans don't want abortions performed after the first three months, after 12 weeks, 18 weeks, 20 weeks, 30 weeks. Most of the the, the more you go into gestation, the numbers plummet. So by the time you get to, hey, should you be able to abort a little Billy? In the eighth month, the overwhelming majority of Americans like, yeah, no. okay. but there are some radicals out there like, hey, man, uh, a woman's right to choose and her reproductive freedom and health care. That goes all the way up till the day of the birth, because who are you to tell them otherwise? Right. Autonomy. You are God. How convenient. Trump promised promised an abortion policy where everybody comes together. Trump then contradicted his previous remarks by saying Democrats don't want to see abortion in the seventh month. Okay, I speak to a lot of Democrats. They want a number. There is a number and there's a number that's going to be agreed to. He added, because Democrats don't want to be radical on the issue. Most of them, some do. They don't want to be radical on the issue. They don't want to kill a baby in the seventh month or the ninth month or after birth. The seventh month, I bet you a big chunk of Democrats in office today. Uh, would be hard-pressed to take a hardcore stance against that. Because, again, you're, me- you're messing with the idol there. So they, they get very nervous about doing anything 
That's like when the pro-life girl asked uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, you have two daughters, right? Twin daughters? Yes. And how old are they? 17. Okay, cool. Well, before your daughters were born, were they human? And Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the head of the Democrat National Committee at the time uh, and in Congress, uh, couldn't answer the question. Well, I've always believed in a woman's rights to choose, blah, 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 blah. And the young girl goes, uh, no, ma- ma'am, please, yes or no answer. I'm asking a yes or no question. Before your twin daughters were born, were they human? Blah, 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 women's right to choose, blah, 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 reproductive freedom, reproductive health care, blah, 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 blah. And then she, she pinned her down a third time. And finally she says, and Debbie Washman Schultz, who I assume is not stupid, ignorant, lost, not intellectually stupid, says, literally, go look it up yourself. Watch the video. They're human now. <laughs> Which implies that at some point they weren't. So at what point, Debbie, were you Sigourney Weaver carrying the alien? Right? That, that's where this goes. So Trump's a little off on that. Don't want to be radical on the issue. Plenty of them do. I think the Republicans speak Vinny very inarticulately about this subject, Trump said. I watched some of them uh, without the exceptions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When, when Welker asked Trump if he would sign a 15-week ban on abortion, He replied, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years. Right, because I'm the guy. I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. Trump then attacked Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for signing the Heartbeat Protection Act, which prohibits abortions once the unborn child has a detectable heartbeat or as early as six weeks of pregnancy. When asked if he would support similar heartbeat bills, Trump proclaimed, I think what he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. I hope he's speaking politically because that is not a principled stand at all, at all. Oh, I think a six-week ban is a terrible mistake. So so a 12-week ban, you're going to take out about 25 to 27% of abortions because the vast majority of abortions take place between 8 and 10 weeks, okay, 8, 10, 11 weeks, somewhere in there. So when you do a 12-week a, a ban or a 14-week ban, you're going you're gonna to reduce abortions, allowable abortions, by about 25%, 30% at the highest. So you still, you still have 70% of the babies being killed. And uh, he thinks that's a terrible mistake to sign a bill that would eliminate abortion. Because he's, he's, he's not principled here from a moral perspective, an ethical perspective, or a Christian perspective. He's, he's being a politician here. Trump told the Meet the Press host, I have exceptions, by the way. I think people should have exceptions. I think if it's rape or incest or the life of the mother, I think you have to have exceptions. It's very important. Trump avoided Welker's questions of when he believes abortion should be illegal. It could be state or it could be federal, Trump said. I don't frankly care. On the issue of abortion with Democrats, Trump told Welker, I think, they'll, I think they'll all, they're all going to like me. I think both sides are going to like me, which I think is at the epicenter of a lot of President Trump's pathology for everybody to like him. And I think that's why he gets upset with the whole COVID thing. Cause he's in his mind, I think I'm, I'm obviously guessing here. I'm trying not to be uh, sinfully judgmental. I, I think that he's sitting there going, Hey man, I got operation work to be done. That saved millions of people, tens of millions of people, a hundred million people. Where, where are my props for that? Surely everybody will like me for that. And, and, and they don't. And I think he just, probably is incredibly upsetting to him. He said of Republicans and Democrats, we're going to agree. No, we're going to agree to a number of weeks or months or however you want to define it. And as both sides are going to come together and both sides, both sides, and and this is a big statement, both sides will come together. Now, if you want to do a, a, a nationwide 
12-week bill? If I were the president of the United States, would I sign it? I'm sure the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Well, if I could sign a, a – Congress is with me, and I can sign a 12-week bill to flat-out ban 25% of abortions nationwide while at the same time leaving it to my pro-life friends in good states who want to just flat-out ban it. But at the federal level, there'd be a 12-week ban. I'd sign that because I'd rather save 250,000 babies than not. But on the state level, it couldn't. If they wanted to trade that, I'd say, yeah, no, just do the numbers. Because the states that are that are flat out outlawing abortion, doing a heartbeat bill like they did in Florida, that's going to save more lives than the twelve week ban nationwide, most likely. And so, you got that. So these are the things that, if you wonder why I don't have a, a MAGA hat, this is why. Okay, but I don't think I'd, it's just hardly any politicians I would wear a hat for anyway. Nor would I expect anybody to wear a Steve Noble hat either. I mean, we're all flawed. Everybody's got plenty of sin going on. But these, these people are elected officials and the president of the United States. I'm just, I think it's just an, an, an indicative. I don't think Trump's a deeply principled person when it comes to social issues, which is why he stammered a little bit with Megyn Kelly on the, uh, can a man become a woman? He kind of stammered a little bit. Polling's out. I just found this one. Almost 70% of Americans don't believe that biological men should be allowed to compete in women's sports. Most of us are so sick and tired of the whole gender thing, the transgender thing being shoved down our throats, that people are like, uh, no. I mean, I don't think we should mistreat people. And once you turn 18, if you want to mutilate yourself, I mean, I suppose you have the right to do it. Legally speaking, not from a Christian perspective, but legally speaking, you do. But before that, no, you've you got to ban all that. You can't allow that. You can't allow men to compete with women. In, in just about every sport where men have a natural capacity uh, to do better. And that's just unfair. And in many sports, it'll be da- flat out dangerous. No, you just take a hard line there. You don't have to take much time to answer the question. Just answer the question. No, men can't become women. Women can't become men. Should we uh, outlaw mutilation of children underneath the 18? Yes. Should men be able to compete with women in sports? No. Next question. What would that take me? 15 seconds? Pretty efficient. He's just not like that. That's not who he is. So I'm trying to see if David Fisher, I don't recall if um, we had set something up different or if he was out of town or something. But I'm not sure if we're going to have David on for the last segment and uh, a Money Monday update. Hopefully we will. And, uh, and if not, I've got a couple other things that I can talk about. This article, especially because I'm teaching on it this week, are we living the fall of Rome? And there's a lot to be learned there. There's a great book I read and had the author on several years ago, uh, Dr. Black, When Nations Die. And there's a really famous book about the fall of Roman uh, civilization. Uh, that was Edwin Gibbons' classic book on the fall of Rome. So that's a really interesting article that's important for us to understand. Then the Taliban detained Americans. 17 others in Afghanistan for propagating and promoting Christianity, so we need to pray about that. I'll see if I can get to uh, David. We might have switched it. I don't recall. In my mind is not operating effectively. We'll see what happens. We'll come right back after the break. This is Steve Noble on the Steve Noble Show. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. It's Steve Noble. We'll reconnect with uh, David Fisher in the near future. Get him back on. 
weren't able to connect with him today. So just pray that David and everything's okay. And we'll, uh, we'll uh, follow back up with him and uh, get planned for the next time that our dear friend will be on. Um, are we living the fall of Rome? So last Thursday, called an audible and did a little lesson on the rise of Rome. This is about the fall of Rome and parallels that uh, we should probably pay attention to. This was Peter, Dr. Peter St. Ange, O-N-G-E, Ange, Ongi. I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, thanks, Billy, that sent me this today. I was on financial journalist Charlie Payne's show recently talking about the progressive collapse of the once great city in New York. Charles brought up parallels with Edward Gibbons' classic book on the fall of Rome. Should sound familiar. What led to this was New York announcing it would cut police funding to spend $12 billion on an apparently endless flood of migrants. Migrants who have been pulled in by open borders and generous benefits, including being put up in luxury hotels at taxpayer expenses, apparently forever. Zooming out, late Rome is almost a perfect fit for New York. What was once the greatest engine of prosperity in the world, of history-changing innovation, a global center of culture, has now become a crumbling parody of itself. A two-tier society with obscene wealth at the top, fueled largely by parasitic finance, set against a rapidly growing lower class living in a progressive misery and insecurity, all held up by a fading middle class who are fleeced to hold the whole thing together, paying obscene levels of taxes relative to what they earn, and obeying a dizzying series of laws and mandates that only hit them. The rich buy their way out, the poor just ignore the laws. What unites them is everybody's knowing, everybody knows it's unsustainable. That, that, that it's all a Ponzi bought with $33 trillion of debt, almost $300,000 per household, and on its way to $50 trillion. None of these trillions will realistically pay, be paid back, and sooner or later, the suckers who buy that debt will make that bet. Edward Gibbon was a well-known classicist writing around the time of the American Revolution. As a classicist, he knew the ancient theories of societal decline, including the most prominent, the Kyklos of Polybius, 200 to 118 B.C., so remember, this, he's, he's very much like a lot of our founding fathers who were studying especially the rise and fall of civilizations and what types of government systems worked and what didn't. Take pieces that work, these, these like democracy, three different branches, checks and balances, stuff like that that goes all the way back to Roman and Greek culture. And they learn from all that. Then they look at Europe and go, yeah, the kings and queens things, the monarchy thing. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work. We're not going to do that. So same type of thing going on with Edward and Gibbon. In that model... Gibbons, uh, societies go through cycles of rise and decline. Polybius's formula is well known today in the good times make weak men mean, and it has held true for millennia. Working with this base, Gibbons wanted to understand exactly what these weak men did in order to destroy the greatest empire the world had ever seen. What were those? So what drove the decline for Gibbons, the, the, historian, the historian from around the time of the American Revolution? Today, historians focus on the symptoms of Rome's fall the consequences, the moral decay, the economic decline, the fall in public safety, the multiplying plagues from the dysfunctional public services, the hollowed out military that ultimately invited barbarian invasions. But we know these well. In fact, we're living through many of them. What's a lot more interesting is the why, because that's how you stop it. And the answer, again, direct, directly from Gibbon, is threefold. Specifically, the economic mismanagement, political corruption, and endless foreign wars. As prosperity faded, the government reacted, meaning in Rome, not by pulling back, but, but by expanding at breakneck speed. The bread and circuses multiplied to distract an angry populace. Think Colosseum. Civil unrest multiplied as classes fought over a rapidly shrinking pie. Now, remember, the military was made up of plebeians, poor folks. A lot of them had had, had farms. 
They go off to these endless wars, building the Roman Empire. Their farms uh, fail, and rich people come in and buy the land. And the government wasn't doing anything about it. That's how Julius Caesar came to power, by the way. He came back and saying, I'm going to take care of all the soldiers. He had soldiers with him. He crosses the Rubicon River and becomes uh, Caesar for life. And, and then he actually built facilities, like little communities for military vets. So that's what's happening. You have the haves and the have-nots, okay? Civil unrest multiplied. And above all, foreign wars were used to, to refocus the population on an external enemy to drain the cities of military-age men and to reach for the occasional glory as Rome conquered yet another far-off people at ferric cost in blood and treasury. Taken together, the entire the empire bankrupted itself, hollowed out its economy, and used the government and war to squander what was left. The fall of Rome is a sobering lesson for us today, not only because the patterns are so obvious today, but because every fallen empire follows the same pattern. The Gupta of the 6th century India, the Song Dynasty in China, the Spanish Empire, Victorian Britain, on and on it goes. I believe there is still time, the author writes, it's what gets me up in the morning, to fight another day. Millions are waking up to what's happening and resolving to reverse it. And it's important to remember we have reversed it before. The Renaissance, the Victorian era, the Meiji Restoration have all reversed eras of decline led by men and women of resolve. He's totally missing the spiritual element, obviously. Uh, we're still logging more losses than wins, but I believe the tide can be turned in time that our predatory government can be leashed before it destroys us. What's happening right now is deeply concerning, but we have every chance to reverse it, and we all owe it to future generations, even to current generations, to never give up. So that, that's why one of the reasons you study history, so you can read and learn what happened, what actually happened, what led to it, what were the results of it, and then, hmm... Does anything seem familiar? Do we see some of these signs, I don't know, here in America in 2023? I mentioned the book by Dr. Black called When Nations uh, Die. And he came up with a list of the 10 things that had uh, progressively happened in the Roman Empire to bring it to its knees and ultimate destruction. And so you go through the book and there's this list of 10 things and you go through all that. I'm going to read some of that to my students this week in my world history class. And then he says this very interesting thing. And he wrote this book like in 1992 or something. <laughs> so a lot's changed in 30 years, obviously. Hasn't gotten better. And he said that the, the fascinating thing about this, uh, as far as he could tell in, in world history, uh, it had never happened when all 10 conditions existed in one place at one time until now, and it was here in America. And that was like in 94 when he wrote that. So... What's, what's the point? Pray for our nation. Be engaged. But realize, I mean, America is not eternal. Americans' souls are. That's the bigger issue. America itself is not. So that should help us all to perhaps focus our energies appropriately, which I'm, I'm never going to tell you. I never have. I never will. That you abandon the culture because the culture is made up of people made in the image of God. And part of the gospel is loving your neighbor. You love your neighbor enough to share with them the good news. What they do with it is their deal, not yours. But the same thing with cultural decay, rot, social issues, economic issues. This has real impact on real people that are all made in the image of God. And so you can't sit by and do nothing. You can't walk by the guy that was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. You have to be the good Samaritan, not the Pharisee that's like, hey, I don't want to help them. You can't do that. But not the least of which we should be praying regularly, if not daily, for our nation. 
Uh, or for these folks, Taliban detains American and 17 others in Afghanistan for propagating and promoting Christianity. The Taliban, it's in the New York Post, two days ago, raided the offices of a Swiss nonprofit group in Afghanistan, detaining 18 workers, including one American, for allegedly preaching Christianity, the country's government said. The International Assistance Mission confirmed Friday that the Taliban stormed its office in Ghor, G-H-O-R, located 400 miles outside of Kabul on September 3rd and and 13 and took away nearly 20 workers. Three members, including the American, were taken in the first raid and the 15 others were taken 10 days later. They were transferred to an unknown location in Kabul. The Swiss charity, which helps improve healthcare and education in the country, said it was, quote, unaware of the circumstances that led to these incidents and have not been advised of the reason for the detention of our staff members. That was in a statement. At this time, we have no information about the nature of allegations against our staff and are therefore unable to comment or speculate about uh, this ongoing situation. Taliban officials, however, said the detainees were taken into custody for propagating and promoting Christianity. Government spokesperson Abdul Wahid Hamas said several women, including the American, were among those that they held. The nonprofit has operated in Afghanistan for nearly 60 years and is a Christian-based organization working to improve healthcare, education, and community development. However, the nonprofit follows the customs of the Middle Eastern country, probably head covering stuff like that. But pro- they can't follow the c- customs of the Taliban. They can't. They're not allowed to because they're not Muslim. Nonprofits have fallen under greater scrutiny since the Taliban took over after the U.S. pulled out of the country two years ago. The Taliban has banned women from working for aid organizations in the country, and the terrorist organization has implemented harsher laws against women, banning them from public spaces. No education, all that kind of stuff. So whenever we run into a story like this, and I bring it up on the show, you run into it in your own personal life, uh, the least we can do is pray, right? So let's, we got a little over a minute left, so let's pray for these people, and then we'll be done. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord, and we just pray. Uh, for our brothers and sisters over there in Afghanistan that are trying to do a couple different things. I'm sure they're trying to help people where they're at to minister the people in their health care needs and other things, Lord, but also to minister the ultimate medicine, which is the gospel itself. And we know that the forces of evil hate that. They hate your people. They hate your word. They hate your spirit. They hate your gospel. And so, Lord, we pray just supernatural protection over these people that, uh, Lord, you would be able to get them out of there. That you would use different agencies, different people, whatever the case, to rescue these folks and get them out of there safely. But, Lord, we pray that there would be kingdom fruit from this bitter tree, that your will will be done. But, Lord, we do pray boldly for their protection and for their rescue. And that the gospel would continue to go forward in that very, very dark place. Give them strength. Give them courage. Lord, let them feel your presence around them, that you never leave them nor forsake them. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. This is Steve Noble on The Steve Noble Show. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward.